one of my favorite lines from uh, a Hemingway letter is him writing to, I believe it was his first wife, Hadley, and telling her how he had taught one of his cats to walk along the balcony and drink whiskey and milk with him. If you didn't know that Ernest Hemingway had a drinking buddy and it was his cat, you have come to the right podcast. I'm Shani Luft, professor of religion in America and associate dean of general education at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. And this is No Cure for Curiosity, my podcast for curious people. Can I just say, I have not read very much Hemingway, and the stuff I have read, I didn't really enjoy. But last year, Ken Burns released a three-part documentary about Ernest Hemingway, and it got me curious about whether Hemingway is even relevant today. To feed my curiosity, I reached out to Ross Tangadol. Ross is Assistant Professor of English and Director of the Cornerstone Press at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Ross is a scholar of American print and publishing culture and the works of Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and writers of the American Midwest. And we were lucky enough to be joined by Katie Warzak. Katie is a PhD candidate in English and African American Studies at the Pennsylvania State University. Katie is also a graduate research assistant for the Hemingway Letters Project, which is why she knows about Hemingway's whiskey and milk drinking feline. You don't have to know anything about Hemingway to enjoy this podcast episode. You don't have to have read The Sun Also Rises or Farewell to Arms or short stories like Up in Michigan, which I'd never heard of before this conversation. What was so great about my conversation with Ross and Katie was our wrestling with what makes Hemingway relevant today. Should we be talking about Ernest Hemingway's books or whether or not he should be canceled? These kinds of questions are what made my conversation with Katie and Ross so much fun. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. So, Ernest Hemingway, he's born in 1899. He led this kind of incredible life. I always picture him as being this uh, incredibly masculine, rugged guy and his actual life. I, I never knew how much of that was real and how much of that was puffery and myth-making. And it turns out both, although he was a pretty masculine man's man kind of guy. He was mm -hmm. a wounded veteran. He was a big game hunter, a deep sea fisherman. Uh, he won a Nobel Prize for literature. Uh, he was an ambulance driver in World War I, uh, a, a journalist in the Spanish Civil War. He was also uh, a correspondent in World War II. And then he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound in 1961. So he led this really big life. But the thing I was most curious about watching the documentary, which is why Ernest Hemingway and why right now? And what I mean by that is he's a kind of figure of masculinity that I think um, might fall under the category of toxic masculinity today, although no one in the doc uses a phrase like that. What we've known about Hemingway, at least in the critical community, is that he's ebbed and flowed. But Hemingway is so far from simple. There's actually a book called So Far From Simple about Hemingway. Um, and frankly, Hemingway was part of his own creation. He made himself into this figure um, that that is a, a representation to, in many ways of toxic masculinity. And the Burns documentary doesn't shy away from those qualities, which I respect and I felt was necessary in the telling of his story. He seems like such a an old-fashioned, pre-contemporary kind of notion of masculinity. So I'm, I'm wondering, is Hemingway, is he still relevant in the 21st century? What still makes Hemingway relevant today is the writing. And, and I learned this a long time ago. I, I reached out to a professor at Kent State and I said, hey, 
I see you study Ernest Hemingway. I said, I, I've just written kind of a thesis on him. It was him and William Blake. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in what Hemingway is doing. What do you suggest? And he said, well, it's, it's simple. He said, you have to read his work first, many times. Don't, don't go right to the biography. Don't go right to the secondary criticism. Don't, don't immediately escape to all the other stuff around Hemingway, which is really easy to do. Instead, just get into the work, get into the short stories, get into the nonfiction, reread the novels. And from that deep understanding and experience with the fiction and with uh, the nonfiction, all of a sudden, all that excess stuff sort of starts to dissipate. We have to basically make our way through layers and layers of, of, of things that Hemingway made himself. It's not like I'm trying to... Uh, say it's okay that Hemingway treated his four wives poorly or that he treated his sons poorly or that he um, at times showed anti-Semitism, at times showed racism, at times showed misogyny. Um, and there is no excuse or retreat from that. But at the exact same time, understanding a writer in their time and the expression that they're trying to get across and the sheer fact that Hemingway changed the way that writing is done in America, whether there's people that they can say it, that they can say that's not true, but they're lying. He changed the way that people write and how many writers can make that claim. I think there's also an increased interest in what do we do with writers with whom we disagree? We've had a number of reckonings in the last decade, even with popular writers such as J.K. Rowling. There's a whole generation of people, myself included, who grew up on Harry Potter. And now it's a lot of questions of what do we do with the series that has meant so much to us? How do we deal with these writers who have been so influential to us personally, in Hemingway's case, to literature more widely, when they have many problematic political, personal, etc. stances. So scholars like Ross and I uh, have kind of come to terms with, you know, okay, so we don't agree with everything that Hemingway did, how he treated his wives, how he treated his sons, how he behaved as an individual, um, but he still had this influence. He still had this writing that changed American uh, and English literature, but while we in the academy might have kind of kind of come to terms with, okay, here's how we deal with authors who have meant so much, I think there's still a wider kind of public question of what do we do with these people? And I think Ken Burns in kind of bringing, uh, doing the Hemingway documentary does at least attempt to answer some of those questions by showing his multiple existences as, as a writer, as a human, uh, as someone who did embody a lot of these characteristics of toxic masculinity, but was also very interested uh, in gender ambiguity and flexibility. I, I want to ask you both just what you thought generally of this documentary. You both come from uh, teaching Hemingway, from being scholars of Hemingway. I was curious when you watched the documentary, what you made of it. I wanted more of his cast. That was my main, that was honestly, that was my main criticism of, I, I wanted more of his cats. Did he have a lot of cats? I did not get that impression. He had so many cats. Yes, six toed cats. But he had a ton of cats in, in his home in Key West. One of my favorite lines from uh, a Hemingway letter is him writing to, I believe it was his first wife, Hadley, and telling her how he had taught one of his cats to walk along the balcony and drink whiskey and milk with him. So the cats were a large part of his life, but given the complexity that is Ernest Hemingway, 
there's only so much that one can get into in the six hours. And I think the documentary did an excellent job of portraying as, as full a picture as possible. And maybe it raises the question of whether we should like Hemingway, but whether we like him as a person and whether we like his writing uh, are two different questions to my mind anyway. Thank you. Yeah. Ross, what did you think? What did you make of the documentary in general? I think that especially as, as Americans and with the, with our notion of popular culture and with um, whom we choose as, as role models or models for living, we have a tendency to want the people that we like to read, that we like to see act, that we like to listen to music speeches. We want these people to be for lack of a better word, perfect because we, we have this image of them as moving us in such a way that it changes our lives or it gives our lives meaning. It gives us, it gives us more than we give it, right? That's the point of art. It gives to us. So when we, we have to confront the complexity of those folks that we look up to, it causes kind of a break. And, and there's just something very powerful about trying to understand a flawed figure who can make beautiful things. And that's really what Hemingway did. It just reminds us that it's the work that matters. It's the work that makes the history and the legacy and the, and the future. It's not always, it's not always the, the person it's the work. And so that's how I always came to Hemingway. And I thought the, the documentary validated. Yeah. Can I actually jump in on that? Cause that was something that yeah, get in there. I found really <laughs> fascinating was, um, and Katie, you, you mentioned earlier, the, the inherent contradictions in uh, Hemingway. Those were the things I took note of, right? He, he, on the one hand, he presents himself as kind of this man's man who can handle himself in the African wilds. But then his first two wives were independently or they were, they came from inherited wealth. And so it's that family wealth that that enabled him to travel the world and write. Without his wife's wealth, he would never have been able to live the life he was living. The other uh, in- intriguing depth of character about him is that he was also very self-conscious of the kind of marketing and myth building. Yes. That I did not realize, that he knew he was bullshitting some of this stuff. I mean, from the beginning... He was making shit up about his life and the things he did um, yep. because he, he knew that part of what he was creating was a character. So I was kind of I was fascinated by those inherent contradictions in his personality. And the biggest one, his sexuality. That was the area where that was a revelation to me. They were able to get pretty deep into um, his sexual relationship with his wife. And it was really complex. I, and, and I was fascinated by that and didn't know anything about that. Katie, I'm interested in your thoughts about on any of that stuff. Sure. So it didn't come as a surprise to me. I think read the garden of Eden. That's like one of his later novels. Yeah. It's a posthumously published book. It wasn't fully completed by him during his lifetime the in to the gender question and the sexuality question like that book the garden of eden is a great example of hemingway diving into that uh and exploring those things because like within i want to say the yeah. first 20 pages we have the main character david and his wife uh flipping sexual roles in bed mm-hmm. it it's go it goes into that like right from the start and it's a, then kind of just goes into much different territory than I think many people kind of assume when they think Hemingway. 
in terms of the relationship that David has with his wife and this other woman that they bring into the relationship. Yeah. So, and that was the book that uh, in the documentary, they said it, it was much more explicit sexually than, uh, than um, maybe what you could have gotten away with in the 1950s, 60s. It's a great book. It, it's great stuff. Yeah. Well, it, but that's, but it's not just that it's dirty. It's that I think the garden of Eden has, was the culmination of years of him doing this in his fiction. It's not as if it just showed up in the 50s, mm-hmm. like, hey, all of a sudden Hemingway is going to start talking about ambiguity and androgyny. You know, they're all over his fiction, though. And so Hemingway was always fascinated by that kind of that kind of um liminal state between genders. And more so, and people don't know that, Shawnee. It's that that's not a readily available anecdote. All we get is grace under pressure. Yeah. All we get is, you know, he's a big game hunter. It's like, well, that's great. But look at all this other stuff that clearly interested him. Well, that is a story about Hemingway that seems like it speaks directly to this moment. His sexuality is really fascinating in ways that um that I hadn't heard anything about. And and what we know, I, I was surprised how much information we actually can derive, I guess, from his letters. Yeah. So like a lot of people, I get sucked into the fascination with the guy. And what both of you, I think, have really clearly said is um, don't lose track of the writing. I'm curious if either of you teach um, Hemingway to students and then what do contemporary students, how do they respond to his novels or short stories? So Garden of Eden played very well with my with my upperclassmen um, as we discussed sort of issues of gender and sexuality and and, and ambiguity and androgyny. Um, with my composition students, I teach up in Michigan a lot, which is one of Hemingway's sort of first short stories that he was really, really proud of. And it's a rape story. Um, and, and so right away, you get the context. And it's it's told through first the perspective of Liz Coates, who is the, a young girl who works at this camp and or this town, and Jim Gilmore, the blacksmith. And the, and the story ends up with Jim raping Liz. And the story is extremely well told and and it provides way more complexity um than you would than you would imagine and then also it's a book it's a it's a story about consent which in today's especially in today's generations that issue of consent is much more uh, forward in our thinking and in the way that we address relationships and love and 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 um dating and all of that stuff so up in michigan plays plays really well and i've never had a class of students who have just resoundingly said, we do not like Ernest Hemingway. We don't, we can't have this anymore. I think it's because, especially with the short stories, they're so short, they're so compact. You pick the right ones, you know, you just see the little sparks in their eyes. Like, wow, like there's so much more to this than, than what I thought. And, and that's why Hemingway is so teachable. It, it's so active. It's such an active environment in the classroom when you're teaching Hemingway. The Hemingway novel that I have most experience with is The Old Man in the Sea, which I had to sure. read in high school as a 15 or 16 year old. And I, I'm sorry to say this to members of the Hemingway society. I hated the old man in the sea. Oh, you're not alone, Shawnee. I, you know, and I got to say, I, I was delighted in the documentary that one of the um, scholars interviewed said, yeah, it's not one of his best. There's Ed, Edna O'Brien, my, my favorite. Am I the only old man in the sea defender out here? Well, so let me talk about why I didn't like it. Um, because I, I want someone to defend it. And because I think my trouble with it was the age at which I was reading it, right? A 15 year old reading old man in the sea. I kept, I read page after page and thought there's not a goddamn thing happening in this story. It is a guy that catches a fish. How 
much detail do I need? I wasn't interested in old men or the sea. So, <laughs> so that book had nothing for me. Now, I went into this documentary thinking, oh my God, it's the old man and the sea guy. I'm still angry from 40 years ago having to read that book. So Katie, defend it. What, what about that book moves you? I don't know if this is a hill I'm ready to die on, but like I, 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 okay. All right. So I, I really enjoy the old man in the sea because for me, it's a commentary relating to animality and human identity. But before we get to the fish, there is so much of so much deterioration on the part of Santiago. So he is someone who is starving in Cuba. He does not have money. Um, he's a boy whose name I can't remember right now. This is not great for if I'm dying on the cell. Um, <laughs> I can't. You don't have to die on it. Just take, just, just walk us up the hill. Okay. Um, throughout the entirety of this novel, which takes place over the course of like three days, Santiago eats like three raw fish and one bottle of water. This man is suffering from malnutrition his body is deteriorating. And he acknowledges that like throughout the book, he's like, this fish might kill me. This fish might like, I might lose this fish. Mm -hmm. so, so the way that I was reading the old man in the sea was as a commentary in relation to how this kind of racial otherness and how this difference abledness are gradually becoming disabled coincides with a more animal identity because Santiago, by the end of this book, comes to identify with this marlin, comes to regret killing this marlin. He also comes to identify with a number of the other animals uh, he notices. He like, calls the flying fish his brothers. Um, he like comments on the seagulls. As he is fighting this fish, he is kind of gradually becoming animal as he is also becoming disabled. So for me, this was a kind of beautiful commentary, if very subtle, um, on how all of these different kind of identity factors and physical hardship can contribute to the way a person functions in society. That's not how most people read this book. Um, right. So that's that's how I read it. And that's why I love it. Um, mm -hmm. As a piece of entertainment, I'm not sure I would enjoy it. Um, but from a scholarly perspective, as someone who's interested in animality, disability, race, that just checks all of my boxes. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. So is there a Hemingway novel that if someone's going to read one Hemingway novel, you know, I would not recommend Old Man in the Sea. But is there one that you think is the right one to, uh, or short story that is a starting point? Um, I think if anytime I'm asked, Shawnee, you know, where do you start? I, I wouldn't say novels. I would just say, where do you start? To me, Hemingway is he may be the greatest short story writer in the, in the, in American history. I, that now this is one person's opinion. Don't, don't start quoting me on that. And there's people that will disagree. And I am absolutely okay with that. I'm just saying that for my money and for my teaching, it's the short fiction that kind of gets us in to this Hemingway style. What is this Hemingway style? And so reading the stories, the Nick Adams stories that started in, in our time, um, Indian Camp, The Doctor and the Doctor's Wife, The End of Something, a great breakup story, The End of Something. Um, he breaks up with Marjorie and Marjorie goes, isn't love any fun? And he goes, no. He goes, it isn't. He breaks up with her by saying, it isn't fun anymore. Now, what the hell is it? That's what I ask students. What's it? What do you mean it isn't fun? So I would, I would say, don't start with a novel. Start within our time. The, the short stories. Let's just say that's the book I would 
I would say, let's start with in our time. And if we read that together and we start having conversations, that's what's going to kind of illuminate so much of what this style discussion is about, I would say. That's excellent. Um, I'm wondering if we can close since we just have a few minutes left. I wanted to share a passage that from that I read in the documentary that I found really moving. I can share the one that I stopped the documentary to write down. It's from A Movable Feast. And uh, Jeff Daniels reads the sentence, and I was oh. floored by it. Paris was, was a very, a very old, city. old city, and we were young, and nothing was simple there. Not even poverty, nor sudden money, nor the moonlight, nor right and wrong, nor the breathing of someone who lay beside you in the moonlight. There are several uh, phrases in this sentence that... I, I just enjoyed pondering. We were young and nothing was simple, not even poverty. So that was a sentence I thought I would share with you. Do either of you have a sentence or a little passage that you would share? There's a podcast called One True Podcast, uh, which is done by the Hemingway Society's Mark Chirino and uh, Michael Von Cannon. And they have a segment called One True Sentence, where they ask uh, scholars to come on and writers and people to say, what is your one true sentence of Hemingway's? And so we're kind of we're kind of doing that here, which I'm I'm okay with. Um, but your listeners, if you enjoyed this discussion, again, we are just like we're not even like touching the surface, folks. We're like we're like above the surface of the surface of the surface. Um, one true podcast really dives in, and so. Um, but now I'll let I'll let Katie go. I'm I've decided, but it's 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 like I had to do what I had to do. There's so many to pick from. It's kind of hard. Uh, I uh, okay. This might not be the best one, but I think it does speak to maybe a reason to read the literature. Also, the hill I am willing to die on relating to Hemingway and animals. about, And this is from, admittedly, The Old Man in the Sea. He says, most people are heartless about turtles because a turtle's heart will beat for hours after he has been cut up and butchered. I have such a heart too, and my feet and hands are like theirs. He ate the white eggs to give himself strength. He ate them all through May to be strong in September and October for the truly big fish. He also drank a cup of shark liver oil each day from the big drum in the shack. It was very good against all colds and gripes, and it was good for the eyes. So in this passage from The Old Man and the Sea, we're kind of, we see some of this kind of kinship and identification that Santiago has with these animals. And that's kind of my main argument in relation to the old man in the sea and why why that's it's a valuable text. Um, but I also think it speaks to something uh, to or speaks to the need to actually read Hemingway's writing, um, because we've kind of talked about this um, today in that we so many people kind of assume that they know Hemingway. That's like, oh yeah, it's Hemingway. Like, in, I, I know what's in that book. I don't want to, to read that. And I, I grew up fishing. I come from a hunting family. And I was like, okay, I know what Hemingway has to say about this. I know what he has to say about bullfighting. Hemingway wrote a lot about animals. And I should, you know, talk about the man who writes a lot about animals. But I don't really want to, you know, read about the bullfighting and the big game hunting. And I don't want to read about the killing. And, uh, and, and basically, it was just like, I have to do this, but I don't want to. And then I read them. And it was amazing. Like, I love Death in the Afternoon. I love Green Hills of Africa, even under Kilimanjaro. And no, we do not know what Hemingway says about animals in those texts. Because, holy cow, hill willing to die on. Green Hills of Africa and Death in the Afternoon are such 
amazing experiments in nonfiction. They are tremendous and no, and people don't give them near enough time or credit. My pick for today is going to be near the end of the snows of Kilimanjaro, which actually is the last line in it's part of the last line in the documentary. Very few of Hemingway's passages move me to tears. He's just not that kind of writer. So, but there's something about the way Jeff Daniels read this passage and then my rereading of the story and and this this passage is for me is particularly moving for a number of reasons. So this is near the end of his of his great short story set in Africa, The Snows of Kilimanjaro. And then and instead, instead of, going of going on to, on to Arusha, Arusha they, they turned left. He evidently figured that they had to gas. And looking down, he saw a pink sifting cloud moving over the ground. And in the air, like the first snow in a blizzard that comes from nowhere. And he knew the locusts were coming up from the south. Then they began to climb and they were going to the east, it seemed. And then it darkened and they were in a storm. The rain so thick, it seemed like flying through a waterfall. And then they were out and Combi turned, turned his head and grinned and pointed and there ahead, all he could see, as wide as all the world, great, high and unbelievably white in the sun, was the square top of Kilimanjaro. And then he knew that that was where he was going. Beautiful. I had to hold it in there that uh, when it says all he could see as wide as all the world, I think that's, that's, that's Hemingway. See, that's that in a moment, in a, in a moment in time, in a, in a small place bound moment, the, the world can sort of open up to you. And his experiment of all of his writing was to, to give you the place as if you were, as if you were there, that in reading his work, you could feel the same feeling as if you were in the place. Katie Warzak and Ross Tangadol, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. You've persuaded me that I mean I need to go back and, and re-read Old Man in the Sea now that I'm becoming an old man. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> My appreciation for his writing and his sensitivity increased both from the documentary and from talking to you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. That was All fun. right. Well, thanks. That was really fun, as always. Thank you. If you want to share your thoughts about this episode or any episode, let me know on my Facebook page, No Cure for Curiosity Podcast. And if you enjoy the podcast, I would be grateful if you would rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. Five-star reviews help other people find No Cure for Curiosity. Thanks so much. This podcast is brought to you by University College at University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Our mission is to provide coordinated, intentional, and inclusive services and opportunities through our core values of connecting, supporting, collaborating, and engaging. Discover your purpose and visit UW-Stevens Point at www.uwsp.edu.